So if you listen to this podcast, you likely pay attention to journalism. And if you pay attention to journalism, you're aware of the recent controversy surrounding shams and FanDuel and the earth-shaking, bed-inducing proclamation that the Charlotte Hornets, picking second, might take Scoot Henderson, not Brandon Miller, in the recent NBA draft. And there was a lot of talk about it all. Did Shams do this on purpose to help FanDuel, which pays him? Did Shams know what the reaction would be? And I have no doubt he wasn't trying to be unethical. Like, there's no way Shams intentionally made shit up and put a nuclear bomb in the betting universe. But here's the thing. In journalism, perception is reality. By taking money from FanDuel, as well as The Athletic, Shams is playing both sides in a major conflict of interest. I know folks might disagree, but you just can't be an insider and also work for a gambling site. It doesn't work, professionally, ethically. So again, I don't believe Shams was trying to do the wrong thing, but he did. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Sally Jenkins, the fantastic Washington Post sports columnist and author of a new book, The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. And I am psyched because I've been itching to get Sally on the show forever, and she's worth the wait. This is episode number 317. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. Okay, Sally. Yes. We have to know at least 500 people in common and yet have never talked before, I don't think. Correct? We have not. And I don't, you know, I don't believe we've been in the same press box or room or uh, courtside or I, I, you know, it's weird. It's one of those strange blanks in our careers. Yeah, very interesting. And here's where I want to start. You're going to like this. 2018, I was the, whatever it was, the guest editor of the best American sports writing. Okay. Yeah. And I put one of your stories in. And of all the stories I put in that book, it actually raised the most eyebrows. And here's why. I swear to God, people are like, Sally Jenkins writes so many great things. This is the one you pick. Not that it's not great, but they were surprised. And I want to say it was a column you wrote called Manning adds some meaning to a final game without much. And I looked at this the other day, and I just want to read your lead for a second, which was, there was a glaze of ice over everything, a cold, slippery sheen that made it hard to get a purchase and invited benumb feet to quit trying. Only a few durable souls tailgated to the parking lot, hunched over grills that poured out smoke along with breath vapor, and a gusting wind blew it around and seemed to suggest everyone should just go home. Inside MetLife Stadium, two hopeless teams played a pointless game. If that was what made it so unexpectedly interesting, because there is an integrity in what players do when it counts the least. And so Eli Manning was worth watching on this worthless day. And I fucking love that. Like, I love that as much now as I do when I first read it. And here's what I love. The game meant nothing. Like, I always preach this idea of like, you have to find something in nothing and you have to find the little. The little is more interesting than the big. And the seeking is like finding that little tiny thing that grabs you. Am I wrong in thinking that is somewhat your approach? I was so flattered that you picked that one. I was very proud of that column because, you know, it was I was just trying to meet, you know, Eli Manning's integrity with my own that day. Right. A a lot of my approach in the second half of my sports writing life 
has been to try to play up to the what I'm watching on the field. I feel like when I was a younger writer, I felt a kinship with the athletes, not a kinship, but I felt at least an age kinship. But I feel like it hasn't influenced your writing or your approach to covering sports in a particularly negative way. Do you just not pay it any mind? Is there a way to overcome that? I mean, you know, it's funny. I think my my dad, Dan Jenkins, always tried to kind of resist popular culture references. Like when he was doing a profile of Joe Namath for Sports Illustrated, I don't think he was really like, he he was trying to write stuff for Sports Illustrated that stood the test of time. And so he was always sort of wary of like loading up conversations with athletes and stories about athletes with, you know, a whole lot of pop culture. So I think I took from that, that I, I didn't, I didn't try to relate to athletes that way. What's a conversation you remember with an athlete where you were able to connect about music or something? Oh man. I mean, back in the day, like I'm a big, I'm a big hip hop listener. And I feel like back in the day, I could talk to an athlete my age about Tupac or Biggie or Tribe Called Quest or contemporary yeah. hip hop artists. But I feel like if I went into a locker room now and tried talking about Drake to a 25 year old athlete, even if I have that knowledge, I think they'd look at me like I'm a fool. I think the answer to the question is that as a woman in these situations for like, I didn't even try to relate to these guys. I think these guys saw a woman coming with a, a notepad and a and a recorder. And I, I think the relating thing was hopeless to begin with. So I didn't even try. I just tried to talk to them and sort of coax out whatever. Um, I tried to make them feel comfortable and confident in talking to me that I was genuinely trying to understand something. But honestly, I think for a woman sports writer, I think it was a, a the the rapport thing was a little bit of a hopeless exercise anyway. Wait, I have a weird question for you. You graduated from Stanford in 1982. You wrote for the college paper at the same time you were writing for the Peninsula Times Tribune and you were an AP stringer. You graduate in 82, you go to the San Francisco Examiner, then you go to the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, then you go to the San Francisco Chronicle, the Post, SI, Back to the Post. And you have this really cool career. And I remember when I first read you and I knew you were Dan Jenkins' daughter and I thought, Ugh, she's probably just like some nepotism kid. I think you're one of the great writers truly of our generation. I really mean that. I probably was like, Ugh, Dan Jenkins' daughter. And I wonder what has been a bigger mountain to overcome. Being the daughter of one of the all-time great journalists, not just sports journalists, but journalists, or being a woman, what in the early 80s was still a 99.9% .9 male terrain. Uh, okay, this is going to be sound like a, a really strange answer. This is going to be probably not the answer you're expecting, but uh, the truth of the matter is that both were advantages, not disadvantages. Um, so, I mean, I had interviews with like every major urban newspaper sports editor in the business. I mean, Ed Pope in Miami and Blackie Sherrod in Dallas. And I mean, I had job interviews at 21 years old when other people were trying to get their foot in the door, just out of respect for my dad and landed a job at the paper I wanted pretty quick. I graduated in college in 82 and got to the Washington Post in 1985. That's pretty speedy, right? So, you know, I, and I think a lot of that was due to the fact that I was Dan Jenkins' daughter. I do think it would have turned against me very quickly had I not worked really, really hard, right? Like, I think that the combination of my dad's name and the fact that I was willing to just do anything, cover high school football in the rain in Marin County, for the San Francisco Examiner, which was my first job. My first two years in the business, I covered 
like really small colleges, um, St. Mary's basketball. And so, I mean, I think people were willing to help me once they saw I I was a a really hard worker and didn't throw my dad's name around. I spent two years in California, quite specifically learning the craft, as my dad said, and trying to fail quietly covering high school football and small college sports on my father's advice, partly. And then the, the woman thing, you know, the Washington Post was looking for a woman sports writer. They were looking to add a second woman staffer. Christine Brennan was already there. And George Solomon, our great sports editor at the Washington Post, really wanted to expand the um, coverage of women's sports, wanted to uh, expand the number of women on staff. At one point, I was the national college football writer and Christine was the Washington Redskins writer. He was the first guy to have two women covering the major football beats at a at a major metropolitan national sports section. So, okay, that's weird to say, but like those things were advantages, not disadvantages. I've been tremendously advantaged in this business and the table was set for me. You know, I just had to work. A lot of people will hide it, hide from it and be like, oh, no, 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 no. They'll make some excuse or I work with blah, blah, blah. And I kind of find it refreshing that you're like, there was an advantage here. Like I was Dan Jenkins' daughter and I knew people and that helped me. You know, my dad got not wealthy, but my father got very prosperous with semi-tough. You know, I mean, most sports writers couldn't have afforded a Stanford University tuition, um, but he could because he had written semi-tough and some other um, novels that hit the bestseller list. And so he, he'd he made a very good living, which was not the kind of living most sports writers could have expected to make in the 1970s. You know, so I was lucky there too. I, you know, I my folks had a little bit of money and my folks didn't come from money. So uh, either one of them. So there was a, a pretty strong sense in the household, you know, not to waste your advantages. Man, I just want to say for people who don't know, Semi-Tough was a dad book, your novel your dad wrote in 1972, became a very famous movie. Burt Reynolds, Christopherson, yeah. right. Um, yeah. I have an article you wrote in front of me from 1982 from the Examiner. Yeah. And it was it's about- pretty uh, bad, I bet. No, that's the thing. <laughs> It's about a former Stanford halfback, Darren Nelson, who had been drafted yeah. by the Minnesota Vikings member, Darren Nelson. And the lead was the National Football League Players Association is without a bargaining agreement. Number one draft pick, Darren Nelson, is without a contract. And the Minnesota Vikings are without pity, which I got to say, I'm being serious. You were 20, 20, 21 years old when you wrote that. That's pretty good. That's really good. Okay. This is going to sound weird, right? We all hear rhythms in our heads as writers. Like I always say, we both worked at SI and I always thought one of the weaknesses of SI is I don't think the editors often felt the same rhythms as the writers, right? We all have beats in our head and it would go through the the mill at SI and it all sound kind of the same. But I wonder like, do you feel like the rhythm you hear in your head when you're writing, whatever it is, the tat-tat-tat, the tat-tat-tat-tat is the same or similar to what your dad was hearing? I think it's very different. I think we have really different voices. Uh, his was, uh, you know, very Texas, very uh, jaunty, um, very loose. My dad was a very loose writer. He didn't suffer at the at the keyboard a whole lot. I mean, he worked really hard. Uh, I can remember he'd work all night on a story. I'd hear the typewriter going when I went to bed and I'd hear it again first thing in the morning. And, and some of those nights he'd literally been working through the night on a piece. Whereas mine was, you know, I grew up in New York, not Texas. I don't know. I just, I just grew up with a different, a different voice. And also, and the female voice is different. You know, writers are like fingerprints, right? There's no two alike. And so, and my dad always encouraged me to find my own voice. I had another advantage. I'll tell you that watching young men try to imitate my father's writing 
was really educational because it always sounded just stupid and not, it sounded imitative and flimsy. And like, I would just read guys who tried to imitate him and go, oh, you know, like, just don't do that. So I would play it a little. I really stayed away from that because I knew it didn't sound very good for one thing. What I did imitate was having fun at the typewriter. You know, he said, he said, you better interest yourself first or you're not going to interest anybody else. And he, and he basically like, I think I took from him that um, if you're amusing yourself at the typewriter, that will, it's like perfume. It will almost lift off the page when it's this invisible magic trick where what you're feeling when you write something here, when they read it over there, it almost comes off the page. I love everything about that. Wait, <laughs> I have always said, tell me if you agree or disagree. You can't write for the readers and you have to assume if you find it funny, they'll find it funny. Yeah. No, it's it's like this weird sort of transference, you know, what you feel when you write it, they will feel when they read it. You have to have some faith in that, you know. Um, now, the one where the one place while we're talking nuts and bolts writing, uh, my father gave me some very practical advice about being trying to be funny on the page. You have to go overboard. You have to be whatever you think is funny. Um, if it's faintly amusing, like you have to crank it up a little bit. Like you have to, comedy has to be at a slightly higher pitch. Whereas things that are more emotional or more sentimental, those are the ones you have to knock down because you'll come off treacly or overly sentimental or trite or something. So it's better with like sad events or, or heavy emotional events to play it down a little bit with your writing voice. Whereas with comedy, you want to jack it up. So do you find it harder to write funny or to write somber and serious? Um, I find it harder to write funny because it's just like a funny thought really comes sails in out of the ether. You know, you don't even know how it got in your head practically. And um, sometimes just a take is funny. You know, um, sometimes I just try to find a funny take. Right. Like, uh, you know, every now and then I'll try to write a column in the voice of someone I'm trying to embarrass or shame. Right. That's a that's a fun trick. But my dad was so naturally funny. I mean, he's he's just his default button. His perception of the world was sort of a little sideways. And, um, I, you know, I don't think I'm as funny as him. I'm as I can be sarcastic. I can be amusing. But he was fall out of your chair. Hilarious. I have a column you wrote after your dad's passing called My Father Made Me Laugh and Now I Have a Problem. Beautiful, beautiful column from 2019. And you wrote, even on the morning I was born, seven minutes ahead of my brother, my father sized up the situation and decided at arguably the most profound moment of his life that it was rich with sporting one-liners. Girl at 350, boy at 357, the doctor announced, to which my father replied, kind of heavy, aren't they? <laughs> right. He would do stuff like that just at the at the breakfast table. I mean, uh, I, you know, I can remember sitting around. I don't know where he came up with this stuff, but I think I said, well, what do you think of my brother's new girlfriend? And he said, I don't know. She looks like a speed trap to me. You know, I mean, he could just he could just get something off that uh, you just didn't know where it came from. Does being a writer and writing about sports make you feel closer to your dad or to you? Is it just a gig? No, it makes me feel close to my dad. In fact, um, when my dad died, I, I had a real, like, I was actually, like, in the midst of the grief, I remember saying to myself, I don't know who I'm going to try to impress anymore. I honestly, until two years ago, I wrote largely to impress and please my father. Because if he liked the work, I knew it was good. And he would he would tell me, you know, 
that was a really big deal for me. And I was really, really, I was like, God, am I going to lose my entire feeling for this profession and for my work without him? You know, I mean, that was a, I I really didn't know how I was going to feel about the job without him, which I haven't really admitted out loud very much, but uh, yeah. I mean, so I think what took over was he loved the profession so much and he wrote with a lot of integrity himself. He was very devoted to his craft. He took it seriously as funny as he was. And I mean, that just, he built a good writer. He built a good writer who does it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, I just want to try to stay true to that. I want to stay true to, I love journalism. I love the Washington Post. And that's a gift that he gave me was love of the profession. You know, he used to tell me most people don't like their job. Most people are unhappy going to work every day. And, you know, you should find something that you really like to do. And if you do, you'll be one of the real lucky few, you know, and so try to find something you love to do. Yeah, that's so true. I don't want to get into a few of your hits here, but I, I have to say <laughs> one thing I love about you, Sally, and like really respect Sally Jenkins on Twitter, nowhere to be found. Sally Jenkins on Instagram, nowhere to be found. Sally Jenkins screaming on some TV show, nowhere to be found. Sally Jenkins with, with some hot take that she doesn't really give a shit about, nowhere to be found. I do feel as we writers get older, in a way, a life preserver for many has been hot take, hot take, hot take, hot take. You have resisted that siren call. Um, and I wonder if it's been at all tempting. I think you have to be careful because um, different sort of media can make writing feel really, really hard. And my strategy with all of that is... Um, like television, you know, can make writing feel hard. Like you don't ever want it to be easy. And so I'm pretty wary of that. I'm very wary. I mean, I just love, I'm on Twitter right now, but that's because I have a book to sell. Uh, and also it's, it's better for the paper. I have been on Twitter periodically. And then I torch the account when I just can't stand it anymore because the infighting, I've canceled my Facebook account because you post a column and then there are all these people underneath it screaming and fighting. And there's just enough of that in the world, you know? So I just, the social media toxic burn, uh, the smoke of the toxic burn on social media, I'm just not crazy about. And I don't think it's good for writing. I think Twitter really fractures your attention. I find my concentration is not as good when I'm, when I have a Twitter account and um, I'm, I'm a better writer and a better focuser and concentrator when I just don't have a lot of social media going on. And I think that's true of everybody. Like, uh, I, I think it does something to our thinking and our focus that's probably not fabulous, you know? I agree. I'm sure there's clinical study about that somewhere. But there's a reason why, you know, the tech guys don't want their kids doing it. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's weird, Sally, is like um, I teach adjunct out here at a, at a small college in California and students say, what can you do to separate? What can you do to separate? And the weird thing is sitting here in 2023, I think the thing they can do to separate is write really beautiful pieces, not tweeting out a million things, not having a gazillion followers on Instagram, like writing beautiful in-depth, reporting your ass off, showing your chops. Yeah nowadays actually separates you from yeah. your peers. From the hot take. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, a column is dangerous because it's just such a in daily invitation, like 800 words, you know, with your name on it. And, and you've got the pressure to perform and get something done and turning it in. And a lot of times the hot take is really tempting because it's easier to write. 
you know, I mean, it is. And I, I think I've probably been as guilty of that as, as anybody at times, like including the other day with the PGA Tour and Live, this stuff enrages me, but at least I'm legit enraged. I, it's not a put on. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think I've certainly fallen into the hot take trap as much as anybody. It's almost impossible to avoid the temptation. Um, but I, I think it's important to try and be aware of it. I'll tell you what I do. I have two laptops. I just got a new one. But um, and I'm going to do the same thing with this new one that I did. I took my personal laptop in to the tech shop and I said, I'm going to hand this to you. I want you to break my browser. I'm going to turn my back and I want you to break my browser and I don't want to know how to fix it. And so they did that for me. And I take that laptop to the library and I write with no browser. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, you'll be amazed at how much more productive you are and how much more you get done with your writing. Even if there's something like we're so used to being able to look something up right now. I have to know that stat. I have to know what Mahomes' completion percentage was, or I have to know. Well, no, you don't have to know it right then unless you're literally on a two-hour deadline. Like you don't have to know it right now. You can fill it in with an X and look it up later, but you can frame something out and focus and concentrate and and write from your head instead of, you know, from all this stimulus. So that's, that's one trick. It's one, one trick I have. I had Pat Jordan on this podcast a bunch of years ago and he was still writing on a typewriter. I mean, I think Alan Shipnuck used to write in longhand. Yeah, he did. I have a few things I want to go here. June 18th, 1986, Sally Jenkins, Washington Post, headline, A Dream Within a Dream. And your lead was, the world turned green for Len Bias today. Every time he turned around, somebody seemed to be shoving something leaf green or forest green or money green at him, whether it was a green felt cap or a green silky jacket or a green nylon bag. Make that Boston Celtics green. All he lacks now is a Celtics championship ring. That, however, may be arranged. The Celtics made Bias their first choice and the second player chosen overall in the NBA draft at Madison Square Garden's felt form. I don't have a ring yet, he said, but I'd be pleased to wear one. And he wrote that on June 18th, 1986, and he died the next day of a cocaine overdose. Yeah. And you ended up actually being involved in a Pulitzer-nominated post team that covered the death. Right. You cover this insanely happy moment where this guy is drafted, he's living the dream, Len Bias, and the next day he's dead. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, just uh, dumbfounding, just just awful. The worst feeling I ever had as a sports writer. I mean, I remember I got the call early that morning. I was at home in my apartment in Washington. I'd been to New York to cover him at the draft and talk to him. Obviously, that's a Dateline New York story. And I'd taken the train home and gone to bed and I get a call early the next morning. And um, I mean, I just I wept, you know, before I ever got out of the house you know, bias was big, right? I mean, he was big through here. He he was big like LeBron, sort of. I mean, he was um, he was a, a broad-shouldered ball player and and very substantial um, physique. And I can remember thinking, like, I cannot believe that this beautiful animated guy, this big substantial animated athlete, is uh, gone. You know, the, there was just this hole in the world suddenly. That's the main thing I remember feeling was this the absence of that that beautiful athlete. Have you covered a lot of yeah. death? Have you have you written have you chronicled a lot of uh, death? Well, I mean, n- no. Um, I mean that was that was I mean, I was very young, right? That's that was what, nineteen eighty six? So 86. I was uh I was twenty six. Um 
you know, I mean, look, you know, Pat Summit's illness and death was something I experienced very, very closely firsthand. Uh, so, but no, I mean, one of the reasons I went into sports writing was because it wasn't tragic. So, I mean, I didn't count on covering a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of death, but you know, one thing I learned was that, you know, the sports section really is not immune or inseparable from, you know, the rest of the world. I, I learned that pretty quickly with the, the Len Bias story. I mean, the Len Bias story really changed the country's view of cocaine. I mean, right up until Len overdosed, cocaine wasn't a killer drug. You know, it was yeah. it was considered a rather innocent substance until then. I mean, the lethality of it was really not well known. In 2002, you wrote a piece that I consider one of the great singular sports profiles of all time. It was called Growing Pains, and it's about Kwame Brown, who at the time was a rookie with Washington. And it's an amazing story about this kid showing up in Washington from a tiny, poor town in Georgia. I have in front of me, he wrote, um, there's a guy who worked with uh, Lopez. And he said, one morning before Wizards game, Brown called Lopez and said, I have nothing to wear. Everything's dirty. Lopez knew Brown had a closet of new suits. He had helped hang them there. Kwame, he explained, you have to take those suits to the dry cleaners. That was fine, Brown said, but he didn't know how to do that. And he still didn't have anything to wear. Lopez drove over to Brown's apartment and found the suits in a heap by the bed. Each time Brown wore one, he would take it off, wad it up, and throw it into a corner. Lopez picked up a suit from the pile, got out the iron, and began ironing. And it's this insanely great piece, detail by detail by detail by detail, about Kwame Brown and this kind of fucked up world where a kid who's 19 years old from Bumblefuck, Georgia, gets thrown in Washington, D.C. Right. Would you ever get that access in 2023? Well, I was surprised I got it in in uh, back then, and um, quite honestly, um, but yeah, I mean, you you could like, I mean, so like, I wasn't uh, that was that was just a lot of reporting around the subject. I didn't have a tremendous amount of access to Kwame Brown. I had one interview with him at lunch with another member of the Wizards organization. I actually sent someone with us to have lunch. So I actually, um, guys like Lopez, I just did a lot of reporting around the story, around the subject, quite frankly. Um, I went down to the town, I talked to his mom, but mostly I talked to other people in the organization. I talked to people who'd coached him growing up. I mean, you really, you really have to report in a, because Kwame, he wasn't articulate enough at the time. He was such a kid. I mean, the, the story was really just about what a kid he was. And uh, I mean, I was a slob like that at at 18, 19, too. I threw stuff in the corner until I learned better, till I got a little more responsible. So it, it was just a portrait of a kid who should have been in college. I mean, in college is where I learned to put my shit away, right? Yeah. Because you're living with other people and you can't throw your junk in the in the around the room when you have a roommate and I don't know, but access, I don't think the key to that story was like a, a tremendous amount of access. I think the key to that story was just talking to like 20 people, little tiny details, right? Like that, like the suits, you know, and you, you catalog those, you, you just, you're looking for little ornaments to hang on the Christmas tree. You know what I mean? Oh my God. I love that. You just said that. Are you an obsessive collector of details? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because you never know. I'm a, an a, obsessive noticer. I try, I'm, I, I, sometimes I don't notice things as much as I wish I did. And one of the things I liked about that Eli Manning column was I remember stopping in that uh, parking lot 
and looking around and saying, Sally, notice, you know, uh, take notice of things. Like, what are you seeing? What do you feel? Because like sometimes your impressions are the best reporter. It's not just what you can write down in your notebook. It's what you can sense, notice, smell, take, like you, using your own senses is a form of reporting, right? Yeah. Um, whether it's the charcoal smoke in a parking lot or it's just hearing when a guy tells you a story about suits in the corner, you know, that that's a visual detail that's going to stick with the reader. I'm really fascinated by this point because I feel like my career, longevity in my career, and probably yours too, is a lot sort of chalked up to that. Like you start developing this radar, right? Of like, do, 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 do. And like that little thing and that little thing. And I feel like in a way, yeah. shitty articles, oh, it's Eli Manning's last game, right? Well, let's get a quote from the offensive lineman who says how sad it is. And then we'll follow that up right. with a quote from the coach who say, you know, we're really going to miss him around here. Then we'll put his stats in. And then we'll end yeah. with a quote from Eli from the podium when he says, I'm really going to miss it around here. And that's that's a bad Eli Manning piece. And I feel like, the right. stuff, like you're you're looking, right? You're looking for something, right? Yeah. You're beachcombing. Is that what it's it beach is? Beachcombing. Yeah, it's beachcombing. You're just looking for something shiny in all that dull sand. So like that day, the Eli Manning day, it was just so striking. I mean, it was a sparse crowd. It really was awful weather. It was just lousy weather. And I mean, it really stood out the level of Manning's effort that day. And I don't know, it just, the contrast was pretty marked. So it just was striking. So you have to let things strike you, I guess, you know, like if it's striking to you, like you have to ask yourself, what am I feeling? Right. What am I seeing? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling about this? And so slowly over the course of the afternoon, what grew was a sense of respect that Manning went out there and competed like that uh, on this day that was just so wretched in a season in which he'd been so insulted. I don't think you understand. I've talked about this story, this Eli Manning story many a time, because I'm telling you, people are like, but Sally wrote this and Sally wrote that. And I'm like, you're missing the point. There was nothing to write about here. Yeah. The degree of difficulty. That was a Greg Luganus dive. Right. hundred percent. No, that's true. That is true. Yeah. I love that's that. true. I had no reason, just like Eli Manning, I had no reason to write anything that was any good at all that day, except craft. So I feel good about this. I feel like when you saw yourself in that book, you felt like, oh. I loved that you picked that piece. I love that you picked that piece because sometimes, a lot of times, you write things and you know how good it was. Like, I know the stuff. Like Half the time, people say, oh, that column was great. And I know, you, you and me know the stuff that's really good and really nuanced versus the the hotter take or the more sensational take or the more sensational event. I mean, I, I write a lot of columns where I go, very few people know how good that was. Right. And I write a lot of columns that get a lot of attention and I go, yeah. 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 Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And I hear you're rushing a sorority in college. It's true. I hate sororities. Is that because when you were at Delaware Tech, all the Greek girls laughed at you and wouldn't let you into their parties? No. I bet you tried asking a sorority girl out and she was like, listen, loser, I only date cool bros with tats and kegs. So walk the other way, John. And you were like, it's Jeff. And she was like, I don't care. Just go. No. So what is it? 
I just don't understand why sororities don't wear old USFL jerseys and hats from RoyalRetros.com. They have all different styles and colors. It's really cool. I already put it in order. We're all wearing Arizona Wranglers jerseys for Greek games. Wow, can I come? Uh, sorry, John, but no. We both worked at Sports Illustrated, and your dad is a Sports Illustrated icon. I mean, he would be on the Mount Rushmore of Sports Illustrated. And I dreamed my whole life of writing for Sports Illustrated. Neither of us were there for that long. I thought I was going to be there for 40 years when I got hired at Sports Illustrated. I ended up being there for like five. And I was like, I'm not really enjoying this anymore. Why were you at SI so so briefly? Uh, yeah, because it wasn't the place I think that you and me dreamed of working for. Like the my dad worked there when it was really writer's paradise. I mean, it was like the New Yorker of sports writing. It was a um, it was a place that where the editors and the writers had a lot of mutual sort of respect for each other. And then it really, I think the culture changed. Um, culture change can really kill a place slowly but surely over the years. And uh, I think by the time we got there, Jeff, what years were you there? I was there from uh, 96 to 03-ish. Yeah. So, okay. I was there. I think, I think I had just left in like 90, I think I left in 96. Um, You know, I, one of the things that was happening was they were starting to fight the battle against sort of the digital world. ESPN magazine was, was, was launching or getting ready to launch. Um, They, the editors had sort of, um, it was a very competitive internal battle where they had sort of eaten their young and the, the 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 guys who should have been the best and brightest young editors were kind of suppressed by some of the older guys. There was a lot of office politics that I think caused some talent drain, which is what happens when a culture goes south. And so you had some defections to ESPN to launch ESPN magazine by the guys who probably should have been the next generation of editors at Sports Illustrated. So, I mean... And, and I mean, I, frankly, I left because they just, they just weren't very good to women, quite yeah. frankly, they weren't very good to women writers or they weren't very good. I mean, I, I remember I was told to give my notes to male writers a couple of times. I mean, it's just, there was stuff that was just completely idiotic. You know, there was no, no, no one that I could sit around and say was a horrible person or anything. It just wasn't a great. And and by then there was some hostility towards writers. Yeah. Um, it was almost a culture of resentment towards the star writers. Not that I was one of their star writers, but um, you felt a little bit of an edge from, I think, partly because, you know, I think they felt trapped in this, you know, office in New York while the rest of us were going out having great adventures, maybe. You know, some of it was understandable, probably. There was there had been, I think, a pretty long tradition of star writer behavior that probably didn't sit well with some editors. That's my guess. One thing I do find weird looking back and I enjoyed my time at SI, but every office would have a swimsuit calendar hanging up. And if you think about that, (laughs) just in the context of whatever, like every office you would go in, there'd be a picture of a 90% naked woman hanging with January or February. And that's insane. Like that's, I don't think I realized at the time how insane that was. That's insane. Dude, that was the le- that was like the least of it too. I, I mean, that was just like the yeah. Yeah. Insane. So, I never minded that stuff. I mean, you know, I I didn't care about the swimsuit issue much. I mean, I've I've figured it paid for a lot of good journalism. That is true. You wrote a lot about Daniel Snyder, former owner of the Washington yeah. Commanders, and Snyder now is uh he's gone. He's a former owner of the Washington Commanders and 
It's funny because a lot of like late night hosts were asked when Donald Trump lost the last election, is there a part of them that would miss having this punchline around where you miss having Donald Trump around to talk about? You've written a lot about Daniel Snyder over the years. Is there any part of you that's like, ah, oh, bummer, no more Snyder to kick around? No. The thing that um, I think outsiders have to understand is like, it's not good for our business when we don't have a winner in town, right? Like the readership goes down. There's just a lot less interest in the sports section. And uh, we really rooted. I mean, we rooted for the organization to win. It's just a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to cover a successful organization than a perpetual eight and eight, right? It just was wearying. And it was unfair to the professionals in the building. Like I hated it for the players because that game is so draining and it is so eroding to ball players. And to watch these guys, these young men pouring their efforts out on the field for what you just knew was this corrupt, you know, organization and their efforts were going down a black hole of dysfunction. It just was a bad scene. And um, that's not fun to write about. I mean, I made fun of him, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly made fun fun of him, but I didn't have fun doing it, to tell you the truth. Um, and and after a while, you get kind of sick of the sound of your own voice on the subject. Like, I got really tired of writing about him. And the office would call and say, well, Snyder's doing this and Snyder's doing that. And, and, uh, and I would say, you know, you guys, like, maybe somebody new needs to take a crack at this subject. Like, I'm getting kind of predictable on this, aren't I? You know, predictability is killer for a writer. Boredom is killer for a sports writer. You know, you you can wind up feeling like you've seen the same game over and over and over again or the same types of personalities over and over and over again. And so staying fresh is a real challenge. So I'm I'm thrilled to see new ownership and I will not miss writing about Dan Snyder. Can you still get up for for covering a game? Can you still get excited watching the commanders play the Giants or whoever? Um, you know, if the personalities involved are really interesting and if the team is is competitive and not sort of in in this uh, horrible failure mode that the commanders got in. Um, Pat Riley had a really great description of what happens when an organization doesn't trust the leadership. He said everybody starts subtly gearing down their efforts. And this is in the book. This is there's a chapter about this um, culture and and how a culture can erode in an organization. And Riley said, "Yeah, that subtle gearing down will happen, and they and everyone starts enrolling everybody else in their own cycles of disappointment, you know. And that can be very depressing to cover. And so, um, so yeah, I still get up to to cover like a winning organization. I love covering the NFL playoffs and the Super Bowl. It's just electrifying. It's fascinating covering organizations that are that complex that find ways to get all the pieces in place, like the Kansas City Chiefs, like what Andy Reid has done, particularly because it's such a late career thing for him, right? He was the guy who couldn't win the big one. And now he's got two rings and he's just a mortal lock for the Hall of Fame. So I, I don't get tired of that. I don't get tired. I mean, I had more fun sitting courtside at um, the NCAA regional in Columbus, Ohio, this past year as I've ever had. You may disagree. Give me uh, a Marist Drexel basketball game with 500 yeah. on the gym over Super Bowl. I'm taking the Marist yeah. Drexel game. No? Over a Super Bowl? Um, that, that might be too much. That, that might be too much, but um, I always loved women's basketball for that reason. 
I mean, women's NCAA basketball was always, uh, I always felt for the last 25 years, I've been telling people, you're missing the greatest sport in the world. You're missing one of the greatest sports in the world. And people finally figured it out this past season with Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and, and all that stuff. The game is finally exploding because I think people are finally feeling about it, what I've felt for so long. Even WNBA careers, like no one's getting rich in the WNBA, right? Um, they're making some livings. They'll they'll have some retirement funds, but they're not getting you know wildly rich. And there's just something about the women's game that still has, for lack of a better word, a little bit of purity. Let me ask you a final question. I ask this of everyone who appears on this podcast: What is your best confrontation from your career? Best confrontation from my career? I mean, I haven't had that many. I do know that Dana Kirk, the old Memphis State basketball coach. Um, he called me up. He was really ticked off about something I'd written about a big game he coached. And and he said, you writing about sports is like me writing a beauty column. <laughs> and then a few years later, he got indicted. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> so now, I mean, you know, there was there was a little bit of that, you know, um, but most people, you know, again, I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna, but uh I've been I, I've been treated with a lot of courtesy and respect. Mike Shashevsky was a very young coach when I I was covering ACC basketball. Was one of my early beats at uh, at the Post when I was in my twenties. And Mike Shashevsky wasn't a whole lot older than I was. You know, Tommy Amaker was an undergrad, and um, and uh, you know, so I I kind of got to grow up with some people in the business a little bit. You know. So the stuff like that was fun to do. Well, you know, what's really interesting, Sally? I've had a lot of women sports writers on this podcast from different eras along the way. And I feel like in a, in a way, women of a certain age and older, maybe 40 and older who do this business mm -hmm. almost have a shell about it all. Like women who come along now, if some coach said some piggish comment like that, they would be rightfully sort of aghast. Um, they put on social media, the coach would get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Nothing would be wrong with that whatsoever. But I feel like women right. over a certain age really didn't have that option. And in a way, it seems like it hardened people like you, like Paula Smith, Andrea Kramer, et cetera, et cetera, to like either to fire back something at the guy and be like, hey, you know, blah, 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 go fuck yourself. Or they have to sort of ignore it and just have a hardened shell about it. Disagree, agree. Honestly, here's the thing. Like, it just doesn't happen that often, right? I mean, um, for every time like you're insulted or, or were insulted by a player or a coach in some small, stupid, petty way, there are millions of courtesies, millions of, of pleasant exchanges, interesting exchanges, you know, human exchanges. And um, it just feels disproportionate to focus on like the one idiot, right? Like that's part of it. Um, but the other part of it was like, I think particularly like when I got into the business, you you know, I was a, a young woman going into a man's business. You didn't go in expecting to be, um, expecting it to be fair, right? Again, like I say, I got, I, I had tremendous advantages. I probably was treated better because of my father. Number one, um, but there's plenty of people who didn't know who my father was, but I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I think here's my take on it. Okay. Here's my honest to God take on all this stuff is um, I was raised 
with uh, my father leaving Nora Ephron columns by my bed, right? Like when he realized I was a good reader and I was interested and I might be a writer, he started dropping women writers on my bedside. And Nora Ephron was one of them. And Nora Ephron wrote about a lot of women's issues in the in the 70s and 80s. But she had one immortal line and she said, be the hero of your own life, not the victim. And I, I just think that like my uh, our approach as women in a in a predominantly male business has to be that. Like grievance doesn't get you very far. Most people, um, young people need to know, most people don't care how you're doing or how you're feeling at work. They really don't. They just have bigger fish to fry. They've got their own problems. They don't want to hear what your difficulties are in delivering a column on deadline. They don't want to hear if your feelings are hurt. They don't want to hear if um, they just don't have time or room for it. You know, that doesn't mean that if someone, commits a transgression against you at work that you shouldn't complain about it and take it to the right place. Right. But I do think you need a hard shell in this world. You do. Yeah. Um, any world, any job, any profession, you know, um, being offended, Fran Liebwood said being offended is the price of going outside. <laughs> That's really good. I have very mixed feelings about all this stuff, you know, yeah. Very mixed feelings. I, I'm not in, in a position to complain about anything is 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 part of it. You know, I have not suffered that kind of harassment. So I don't think I can speak about it from a place of real uh, deep experience, frankly. Right. Yeah, fair enough. So well, Sally, I'm uh, I'm the president of your fan club. Seriously, I think you're one of the you're so fans. nice. No, I it's really mutual. am. Uh, I'm a, I'm just a huge admirer. You're a bucket list guest for this podcast. I'm uh <laughs> No, you really are. I'm glad you. I'm glad we were able to do it. You even used the laptop that worked. I'm flattered. Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. I love seeing your closet too. Oh, I see some Skechers. I, those are mine. But thank you so much for doing this. It's great being here. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Sally Jenkins, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can read all of Sally's great work in the Washington Post and buy The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life, wherever books are sold. If you have a shot and you enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.